me go ahead and open this up in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship, would you assure us that you are continuing to be with us? Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this day that we celebrate the blessing of your spirit upon the world, your blessing, the blessing of your spirit upon us. Lord, would you lead us and guide us as we reflect on your work? We pray this in Jesus' name. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that in the wake of his absence, he's going to give them, he's going to provide them a greater, a superior blessing. Imagine that. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14 that in the wake of his absence, he's going to provide them a superior blessing. And that blessing, the superior blessing, is the presence of God, the Spirit. So in Jesus, Jesus revealed the Father through his life, through his personality, as he walked uh, through the Middle East in that first century, he revealed the presence of the Father. He was recognized as God the Son, and he promises that in his absence, he's going to bring, he's going to provide uh, God the Spirit. And what God the Spirit will do is that in light of his physical absence, people will experience his spiritual presence. That's the superior blessing of, of the, the Spirit of God, that in Jesus' physical absence, his spiritual presence will be there. They'll experience him. And this won't be given just to the apostles. It won't be just be given to the disciples, but it will be detonated into the world for anyone to receive. That's the superior blessing that he's promising. That's what the day of Pentecost is all about. And in Acts 2, we see uniquely depicted what takes place in the spirit, or, uh, excuse me, on the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the, the apostles are in a house, and they're meeting together. And outside the house, there's this rumble, there's this tremendous noise uh, of a rushing wind. And then the house is filled with this rushing wind, and it seems like a rushing wind, but it's actually the presence of God. It's actually the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God fills the room. But of course, he doesn't just fill the room, he fills their lives. The Spirit of God comes in them, and they're changed on the spot. And what happens when they're changed on the spot is that the sorrow that they were experiencing because of the absence of Jesus is transformed into joy. They're now, although they're a diverse people, they're given a common language, they're, they're given a common strength and unity together. They're filled with a compassion and a conviction that they had yet to previously experience. And that's demonstrated when Peter goes out shortly thereafter, and he begins to preach to the culture out of compassion and conviction. He says, turn from the idols of your culture. Turn to the, from the, the status quo of the times, of your day. Turn and, and look to Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the spiritually helpless. Turn, he says, and of course, that's the message of the early church. That's the message of the modern church. That's the ongoing message of Christianity. Turn, look to, to Jesus, the Savior of the spiritually helpless. And so uh, one commentator says this, uh, says this about the early church. He says that uh, Christians knew that at Bethlehem, the place that Jesus was, was born, that God was with him. They knew that at Calvary, the place where Jesus died, that God was for them. And they knew that God, that in Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came down, that God was in them. 
It's a profound statement. And so a few activities, I would say, demonstrate the presence of God like that of prayer. Few activities demonstrate the presence of God like that of personal prayer and corporate prayer. And so over the next, over the summer, we're going to be looking at prayer. We're going to be studying prayer. Particularly, we're going to be looking at it through the Lord's Prayer. But what I want to talk about today is, is prayer in general. And I think prayer, uh, there's probably not a better place to look at what prayer looks like practically for us than through uh, the passage in Revelation 3.20. So I'm going to go ahead and read for that. Read us. Uh, read us that passage beginning. This is uh, Revelation 3, 20, and then verses 22. And then let me just set this up. The Apostle John is speaking to seven different churches, uh, and he is, in this particular passage, speaking to the church of Laodicea. It's a very affluent church. Uh, it's a church that's grown apathetic in their walk with the Lord, and he's speaking to them, and John depicts Jesus speaking to the church as he's standing outside of a house, and he's making a great noise. And this is what he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And then in verse 22, he goes on to say, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. And that's the word of the Lord. So a few passages reveal more about the practice of prayer than this one. So, let, so let's just ask, how does Revelation 3 tell us about Christian prayer? What does Revelation 3 tell us about Christian prayer? And I think we can deduce three things. How prayer comes about, where prayer takes place, and when prayer can take hold of us. Okay? So three things. How prayer comes about, where prayer takes place, and the third, when prayer takes hold of us. The first thing, how prayer comes about. Prayer comes about through holy disruption. Prayer comes about through holy disruption. You know, it's contrary to what you and I might think, but prayer does not begin when you and I open our mouths. Prayer begins, according to this passage, when Jesus opens his. Prayer doesn't begin when you and I just begin to speak. Prayer, has, prayer begins when Jesus opens his mouth. What we see here, Jesus is reminding this church that he's initiating the dialogue. That he's calling them out, that he's knocking on their door. Now, why does Jesus? Why does God call out? Why does God knock? Because God does not want to be on the outside of our lives anymore. He wants to get behind the door. How how bad does He want to get behind the door? Well, He's willing to create a ruckus to do that. He's calling to people in a house. He's banging. He's knocking on this door. Why? So that He can get in. And of course, many of us we think that that is a strange idea of prayer, right? Like prayer is me going to God and inquiring, are you there and introducing myself? One of the most popular books of my generation, and this is gonna really date me, <laughs> was the YA novel by Judy Bloom. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Do you know that, mo that, that movie? Do you know that book is about a New Yorker who moves to New Jersey? <laughs> who knew? <laughs> who knew? But the whole story is about a woman, a young woman, uh, having a, a dialogue with God through milestones in her early life. And every time uh, something uh, interesting happens to her, she asks the question, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And of course, that really 
I think, describes how many of us feel about prayer. That we wonder, is God really out there? And every time we go to him in prayer, we have to reintroduce ourselves. But that's not how the Bible talks about prayer at all. Prayer begins by God initiating the conversation. Prayer begins by God saying, by Jesus saying, here I am. Here I am, I'm banging on your door. And yet I think we still have to recognize that for all of us, whether you're a Christian, whether you are not a Christian, whether, uh, it's getting harder and harder for God to grab our, our attention. And even the notion that we need God on this side of the door in our lives, I think for this particular culture, is increasingly less clear. And what do I mean by that? Let's let's ask ourselves one particular question, then let's look at a trend that I think is taking place. Let's ask ourselves the question that whatever you know, whatever your faith commitment is, are we so distracted by technology that we're unable to be interrupted by God? Are you so distracted by technology or your schedule that you're unable to be uh, disrupted by God. Um, one thing that we need to remember about technology is it's not just designed to make our lives simpler, more efficient. Technology, and lots of wonderful things about technology, technology is actually designed to, um, sorry, technology is actually designed to distract us as well. It's just social media entertainment, seeks to preoccupy us. It seeks to prevent us from doing what we want to do uh, in some sense. It seeks to keep us in the game. You know, technology is created so that our attention never leaves whatever app, whatever uh, platform that we're on. It's meant to keep us to be good, faithful consumers of that particular technology. So lots of wonderful things about technology, but one of the things that's designed into technology is to prevent us from leaving that particular application. It's designed to distract us. Um, and, you know, uh, Reed Hastings, who's the founder of uh, Netflix, he said that, you know, this was early on during the pandemic and Facebook, excuse me, Netflix was just taking off and everybody was binging all the time. And he said, you know, it's interesting. We don't really have the typical kind of competition. Competition for us, because people are staying up all night binging what we're supplying uh, mentioning the shows that we're creating, our competition is not another company. Compet our, act our competition is actually sleep. And he says, you know what? We're winning. So, so uh, technology is actually meant to, uh, to distract us. So it only makes sense that if the suffocating buzz of technology is always in our ear, is the voice of God easier to decipher or less so? I think it's probably harder. We also have to recognize a particular trend, and that particular trend is this, that modern people are less and less clear as to whether or not it matters to them if God is inside the door or outside the door. And that's important for us to know. Why? Because as the culture goes, in many ways, so goes the church. You know, the church is meant to be distinct. We're meant to be salt and light. But it's very apparent that a lot of the struggles that we're facing within the church the church mimics the culture in ways that we would never want that to be true. But one of the, the ways that the culture is going is that the culture is less and less clear about the need for God. Do they want God inside? 
they're apathetic about the existence of God and maybe even the urgency of God in their own lives. And Alan Noble, who's a philosopher, teaches uh, English uh, at a college in the Midwest. And he's written a lot about culture, especially in light of technology. And he says one of the one of the dangers of technology is that it has created this culture of distraction, and that inevitably what has happened is that the subjects that we find that have great meaning and significance, uh, subjects that uh, inevitably have tremendous consequences for us, things like politics and religion and education and commerce, all of these things, because of the way that it's disseminated into the culture, in one continuous feed, that all of these, these topics that have meaning for us have been flattened. They don't have the same teeth. They don't have the same urgency. We don't have a, the same understanding of what's primary and what's secondary. None of these topics have uh, the same kind of historical significance for us. So all of these, these topics that have typically have had a great meaning for us, now they begin to lose their value. It's what he calls a, the, a flat, uh, flattening and, un, uh, and uh, undifferentiating uh, stream of news. And so we begin to lose sight of what I said, uh, what's primary and what's not. We begin to lose sight of what's true versus the endless lifestyle narratives and opportunities that are offered to us. And this is what he says. He says, and he's taking the, taking the position of one who's in the culture like he is. He says, there's so many things that could be true. I could never know what the real truth is because he's imbibing all of this. What you end up falling back on then in light of all of this technology and all of this information is your own identity and your own individuality. And you end up pushing away the cognitive dissonance the desire to understand the world and to even feel. Technology of distraction helps with that because if I feel there are no real answers to life's good questions, I can stay entertained all day long and I don't have to deal with the anxiety that tough questions demand. So here's the question. Are we so distracted by technology that we can't even hear God, we can't even hear Jesus standing outside calling out to can't even hear him my Do we even care? So, how do we take comfort in light of that information? I don't think we should. I don't think we should take comfort in light of that information. But this is what I think we do need to see. Jesus is calling out. Here I am. He's knocking on the door. But even more than that, he's not just disrupting in that way. His foundational disruption is that he's praying. He prays for his people. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying to his father, and his prayer is this, that my people would have the same relationship to you than I do, that they would be united to you in the same way that I am, and that that would be demonstrated primarily because they would be a people of prayer. So as a praying church, if you want to be a praying church, if we're growing that way, you want to be a praying person, you can know this, that when you pray, your prayer is an answer to Jesus' prayer. When you pray, you break through. When you hear and you respond, actually, that's a miracle. In this day and age, or in any other, it's a miracle taking place. That is a holy disruption by God. That's how prayer is brought about. So, this is what Isaiah, I'll let you just move on. So second, how is prayer brought about? Through a holy disruption. Where does prayer take place? Prayer takes place on the battlefield of the human heart. 
Prayer takes place on the battlefield of the human heart. And you look at this passage, just two verses, and you think, I can see that taking place. Where do you see that? And there's three little hints. The first hint takes place when, when uh, Jesus is calling out, not to churches, he's not calling out to individuals. What does he say? Well, what, is, what doesn't he say? He says, if any, he doesn't say if any church will open the door. He says, if anyone will open the door. He doesn't say if the church will open the door, but he says, if any man, woman, or child, if anyone, any individual will open the door, if any individual will hear my voice. So the battle uh, of the human heart is taking place because responding to God first must be done by the individual. Yes, by grace, but a little bit of effort on behalf of, of the individual. So first, uh, it takes place on the battlefield of the human heart of the, of the individual. But second, it is a battle. It is a battle. And we know that because Jesus depicts that there is a winner and a loser here. That there's somebody who triumphs in victory and that there must be, therefore, a defeat that can take place. And when we pray, that's a battlefield. And no, there's no person that's neutral in that war. There's no demilitarized zone. Nobody's Switzerland. Nobody's neutral. Every human being, when it comes to prayer, is in a spiritual battle. Jesus says this. Uh, he says, the one who is victorious will sit with me on the throne. So where does prayer take place? It takes place amidst a spiritual battle. And then lastly, the reason I say on the battlefield of the human heart is that Jesus uses this beautiful, provocative image of the door. Of the door. Uh, and when he brings this image to the forefront, what he's, he's doing is he's taking the reader to the place that's personally, intimately familiar to them as the reader. Now, What's doors are actually really helpful images, right? Because there's something on the outside of the door and there's something on the inside of the door. And Jesus wants to get inside of the door. And I think when anybody has that mind and they or when that, that image comes to mind, they cannot help but actually get very personal and very specific. You can't help but think about your own door. You can't help but think about the inner sanctum of your own life the inner reaches of your own heart, the things that you don't share with the public, maybe you don't even share with people who live in that place. It's something about a very personal, intimate place, right? And I think what doors are for New Yorkers, doors are opportunities for us to see that we are not as powerful and we are not as comfortable as we let other people believe. New Yorkers have interesting relationships to doors. You know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and in the early 90s, you know what doors in New Yorkers, for New Yorkers looked like on the inside? They looked like a series of deadbolt locks, right? Because you knew what you did not want to get in, right? So you had a series of deadbolt locks shown in all kinds of movies. Our first few apartments, that's what it looked like. It would take you 45 seconds to get in the door. <laughs> just by unlocking all these locks. So we know what we don't want to be bought inside. 
But we also know as New Yorkers now that when I order something, when I am expecting something coming, uh, when there's something that I need that's outside that door and it's coming, guess what? It doesn't matter what I think or feel or how I'm dressed, whether I brush my teeth or in the morning, if that buzzer buzzes, I'm coming to that door because there's something that I actually need. Jesus is saying, I am on the other side of that door. So doors are reminders to every New Yorker. You are not as powerful because you bolt your doors. Maybe some of us have electronic bolts now, right? We have doormen. You're not as powerful as you think you are. You're not as comfortable as you as we think we are. And Jesus is saying this sheer act of going to the door is an act of, of recognizing your own spiritual hopelessness. That you're afraid of what's happening in the world. That there's a place of but there's a place of need. And our relationship to that door is complicated. We want it shut. But we know we need to receive something from the outside in order to survive. So the opening of the door is an act of repentance. It's the recognition that spiritually speaking, we're all helpless. And in the scriptures, of course, we see a couple of different illustrations around the necessity for a door. And I'll just talk about one of them. And that is this, the, par the parable of the paralytic, or the story of the paralytic. Now, the paralytic was a man who uh, was paralyzed, you know, completely. And his friends took him to see Jesus. Jesus was in a house. But the house was so surrounded with people that they couldn't get in the door. So what do they do? They get innovative. They do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. They, they bring their friend up on the top and they break through the roof. They create a door for him. They drop him down. <clears throat> this man doesn't say anything. And Jesus says to him, by him making a way into the door, your sins are forgiven. What that tells us as a metaphor for prayer is it's not the language that you use. It's the heart in which you, you attempt to get to Jesus. It's your heart. There's a door there. The door there or not, I am going to get to it. So you have the paralytic who creates a door, creates a huge hole. But listen, I have a feeling that even if for those of us who are not quite there to create that big, huge hole, that a crack will do. Just to open the door a crack, that's going to be enough. Why? Because Jesus, remember, is not coming in as a human body. He's coming in by his spirit. And the spirit does not need but a crack. What does it mean to just crack open the, the, the door for God? It just simply means to recognize in your own heart, okay. Okay. This is a little bit unrelated, but I didn't convey it to Susan. When Susan and I were dating, <laughs> I was like a, a disruption in her life. Uh, knocking on the door, calling all the time, uh, wearing her down. Um, and then one time we had this incredible day, concert in the park, dinner in Lower East Side. And we walked out. And at some point, we were having some discussion. But at some point, she just said, just like grabbing like this. And she's like, Okay. <laughs> and what that meant, of course, was I gave up. I gave in. I'll open myself. It didn't, it actually took a whole lot for me. Um, and it probably took a whole lot for her. But this, this situation is similar. It is, 
it's hard for us to go to the door sometimes, but in the human heart, it really, it's a metaphor, right? All we have to do is say, okay, I'll invite you in, God. I'm inviting you in. Okay, moving forward. Uh, what happens when we get invited in? Jesus doesn't just say, uh, what does Jesus say? He says, come in and dine with me. Jesus says, come in and sup with me. The language or the word there is the word that's used for an ongoing, continual meal with no, no uh, urgency of time. He's saying, if you invite me in, I will come and feast with you forever. And there's nothing more intimate and personal within inside of the door than breaking bread with someone. Sharing your humanity, sharing in his dignity. And Jesus provides the meal. Jesus provides them. God provides them. So lastly, when can prayer finally take place for you? Prayer can finally take place when we come to the place that spiritually speaking, we're paralyzed. Spiritually speaking, we're helpless. That there's parts of us spiritually speaking that want to keep that, bolt, that, that door bolted from God. And we are in some sense helpless to open it. It comes from a place of helplessness. And, uh, and there's three ways that we can be thinking about our, our helplessness. One is that we all struggle with a kind of spiritual depression. I had a, a, a friend who struggled with real depression. It was so great that she, this person missed weeks and weeks of school and work. Couldn't get out of bed. Spiritually depressed. Uh, so much so that during one of these seasons, the person got out of, got up to make uh, a meal, but couldn't finish the meal. Went back to bed. Inevitably, what happened was a fire started in the kitchen, and the alarm went off. This person was so depressed that they didn't care, and they just stayed in bed as the kitchen burned, and as the fire alarm went off. It was a New York a New York City apartment. <clears throat> uh, you know, a short time later. The fireman broke down the door, came and resolved the situation. So spiritually speaking, I believe the Bible says that's how you and I all are when it comes to our relationship with God. But the good news is that God breaks down the door. And that's, that's the good news of, of the gospel. God comes in to save us comes in to save us, not to uh, exploit us the way that all other kinds of narratives that we're coming across and that we're imbibing, that we know we're taking advantage of us, that we're giving over to. Jesus is not like that at all. He comes in to save us. So recognize we have a kind of spiritual depression, and that should help us help treat the apathy that we experience and the delusion of our self-importance. How, do we, how does that treat our apathy? Consider what God did to say. God was not apathetic in terms of coming to you. He came so far from heaven to earth. He went so deep from heaven to hell so that he could reach you, so that he could knock, so that he could do what? Stand at your door. This is a little bit shallow. But, you know, New Yorkers, 
are often really glad that they are not delivery people, right? We're glad to be receiving the delivery. We're glad we're, we don't necessarily want to be the delivery. Jesus Christ is the ultimate delivery. He's coming not just to offer food, but salvation. That should that should wean us off. That should diminish our, our apathy towards him. That he's come so far, he's gone so deep to stand at our door. And then lastly, our self-importance. We tend to think that we are way too busy to spend time with God. We tend to think that I've been there, I've done that with Christianity. But if the Son of God desires to meet with you, you cannot be. If the Son of God desires to meet with you, we would be foolish not to meet with him. There's, there's a, take, a, take a second and just consider, who would you wake up early to spend time with? How important would that person have to be in your career your vocation for you to say, oh, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to get a good night's sleep because I'm going to commune with this person. I'm going to meet with this person. We are not so self-important that we cannot make effort to spend time with them. And then uh, just really briefly, when it comes to technology, you know, there's always an impulse to grab it, to go to the app, to use our phone. Let the impulse to grab your phone be the impulse to think. It's designed to meet our anxiety, but it can't. It can only produce more. It can only distract us. Let the impulse grab the phone, reach technology. I'm saying this to myself. Let that impulse go to the one that can only truly satisfy. And second, be, an in be innovative when you think about praying. I know that waking up at 6.30 in the morning or waking up at 8.30 to be on our prayer time, is an obstacle, it's a barrier, it's a door for people, a real one. Make your own, make your own door. Find a way. You don't need me or Chantal or anybody else to come up with a plan for you. There's no excuse. If a paralytic can crash through a roof, we can find time to pray, right? Organically, do that. Commune with God in that way. Create your own time. Be a holy disruption in the world. That's what Pentecost is all about. That's what our church is meant to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us these things by your spirit. In Jesus' name.